This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Today we're talking with Wharton professor Drew Carton about his new research titled, I'm Not Mopping the Floors, I'm Putting a Man on the Moon, How NASA Leaders Enhance the Meaningfulness of Work by Changing the Meaning of Work. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thanks for having me. So what led you to study uh, meaningfulness of work? So I I had a longstanding interest in uh, a problem related to how leaders tend to communicate about the organization's ultimate goals. It's been uh, well subscribed at this point that, uh, that one of the most inexpensive and effective ways that leaders can motivate employees is by articulating a compelling depiction of where the organization is ultimately trying to go. Uh, yet the empirical evidence on that particular tactic is actually surprisingly mixed. On some occasions, it's worked quite well. It's yielded the expected effects. It's motivated employees, led them to transcendent achievements that they uh, wouldn't otherwise be able to attain. But in other contexts, it, it hasn't had that intended effect. And in fact, sometimes it's, it's actually backfired uh, because employees oftentimes will hear lofty rhetoric that's used by leaders and will think to themselves that you know the, the work I'm doing right now uh, doesn't actually seem to be very aligned or connected to the, these grand conquests that you are purporting it to serve. And so uh, it actually ends up leading to a, to a form of cynicism and pessimism and actually can end up demotivating them. So, so I became interested in, in what was going on with that, the, this, this uh, tactic, that, this rhetorical tactic that we would expect to work effectively, yet wasn't working effectively, at least as consistently as we would, as we would think. So um, I, I started to probe the literature in this area a bit more, and it dawned on me that it could relate to a, a fairly interesting paradox that ties to cognitive psychology or so cognitive psychological uh, findings. Specifically, if you think about the type of work that you're doing every day, most people do every day, it tends to be fairly circumscribed and uh, cl- clearly defined, concrete, small in scale. It usually is um, is very time-constrained and time-delimited. So might have something to do by 5 p.m. or by 11 p.m., a deadline, or something by the end of the week. And it also tends to be, uh, it also tends to be done in, in small groups or people working alone. Yet the types of purposes, the types of organizational missions that people find most inspiring tend to be quite grand in scale. So they tend to be uh, timeless, or if not set on an indefinite time scale. They tend to be uh, quite abstract in the sense that they they focus on the essential central merits of what the organization is trying to achieve, rather than any specific concrete situation that an employee might find him or herself in. So, for example, uh, one company has uh, has the vision of becoming the world's most customer centric company. Another company, healthcare company, has a, a vision of of uh, spreading uh, care, compassion, and well being uh, across the world. So these these uh, these visions are very grand in scale. And they're, they're lofty and they're timeless, but they don't have a clear connection to the type of work that I do every day. And so I, I, th- I think what, what really struck me was this paradox that as, as a purpose and as a mission becomes inherently in and of itself more meaningful, it actually starts to feel more disconnected from the kind of work that I do every day as an employee in a given organization. And so uh, that's when I decided to, to delve into this case at NASA, which was a... Uh, a period of time where there were many reports of employees 
who said that 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 period in their lives was included or involved more meaningful work than they had ever experienced before and would ever experience again. Regardless of what they were doing? Uh, yeah, it's interesting because even even people who were quite far removed from uh, the, the you know the, the famous goal of, of landing a man on the moon, people who are far removed from that, for example, electrical engineers, and then of course this very famous legend that that is in the title of, of the paper of a, of a custodian mopping the floors, even they felt and reported feeling an incredible connection to uh, this ultimate goal, and and would often actually define their work every day in terms of that ultimate goal, rather than talking about I'm fixing electrical wiring or I'm stitching spacesuits or I'm mopping the floors, they would actually identify their work as I'm putting a man on the moon. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, was a strikingly unique uh, period of time where many people, this is a 400,000 person organization, many people uh, across the entire organization had these kinds of perceptions. Uh, And it was also a period where there was a lot of very rich information that was available in terms of leader communication tactics and uh, and then how employees were experiencing their work. A lot of internal memos and documents that allowed me to to dive into, to get a really rich sense of what was going on at that point in time. So it's an inductive study. Yeah, so it it was an inductive study in the sense that most, most research that we do here at Wharton and that I do involves crafting a set of hypotheses and then collecting data to test them. This was diving into a a rich, uh, very detailed analysis of a single case and then then trying to induce or get a sense of what uh, some key relationships are between how leaders communicate about the organization's ultimate purpose and how employees perceived their work. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a of a of a departure from the norm, at least from the type of research that's that's done around here. But it allows you to get a rich sense of of the the process and how employees' perceptions uh, shift across time. So when you dove into all this information, what did you find? So uh, I'd say the core takeaway that I found most striking and, and unites a lot of the core findings is that. Uh, and this is a bit, also a bit of a departure from conventional wisdom. So the conventional wisdom around what, how, how leaders should orient themselves when communicating about uh, the organization's ultimate goals is that they should be visionaries. So they should paint a grand picture of what it is that we're all trying to achieve, this, this destination that we're all trying to strive to reach. And uh, what I found is, is it, that's absolutely essential. It's critical that leaders do depict a compelling picture of where ultimately we want to go, but just as important and also more time-consuming and requiring even more investment is that they commu- communicate about how each employee in the organization can get a sense of how their work connects to the organization's mission or vision. And that connection, that process of connection building, uh, took more steps and was more time-intensive and more complex than the process of just selling somebody about the importance and the, um, and, the, and the beauty of this ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve together. In some senses, that was the easy part. The hard part is helping people see a connection between their work and the organization's mission. So what surprised you the most when you dug into all of this? Yeah, I think there were a few surprises, uh, and they mostly revolved around the specific uh, communication tactics that leaders used to help employees see that connection. Uh, one that I found quite remarkable was, um, was you know, it's, it's pretty well known at this point that, that 
articulating a common goal or a common purpose has powerful implications, um, especially for groups, collectives, and organizations, because it, it galvanizes collective energy. It gives people a sense of, um, of a rallying point, a common cause that they can all rally around that, that coalesces their energy and effort and in some senses can build uh, what are called social contagion effects, where people, one person's excitement spreads to another person. And also is a boon for coordination because it gives us a sense of what we're trying to achieve as an organization. Uh, but what I found that was also interesting was um, Kennedy's ability uh, to articulate a common purpose was highly useful for individuals working alone because it allowed them to get a better sense of how their work connected to the organization's ultimate aims. And the reason is, again, drawing from cognitive psychology is actually fairly straightforward when you think about it. Uh, The kind of work that we're doing every day, a lot of times we might look down the hall at what our colleagues are doing or maybe working with somebody across the country on on the same project. And what we'll often do is we'll look to see what other people are doing and we'll piece together what they're doing vis-a-vis what I'm doing. And when it turns out that, that without exception, every time I look to what my coworker's doing, I recognize that they're channeling their effort toward the same end goal that I am then it, it leads to this process of, of mental uh, dissembly and assembly where I, I get a sense that there's this broader puzzle and we're all working on a critical piece of that puzzle. So I'm working on a, on a small piece but an irreplaceable and essential piece of that puzzle. And I can see how it fits in within this broader organizational system. And because of that, I can see how my work connects to the organization's aims. If you have just two or more purposes, even if you just have two organizational purposes, this starts to break down because oftentimes we'll look to what our coworkers are doing, our colleagues are doing, and, and we won't do that process of disentangling what we're doing relative to them and then, and then putting it back together, seeing this, this puzzle. And this puzzle metaphor actually was used by uh, some NASA employees to, as, a, as an illustration of how they made sense of their work. So the surprise here is that articulating a common goal uh, was not just effective for uh, galvanizing collective energy, but also for helping individuals see how their work connected to the organization's aims. And Kennedy did this by, uh, initially, NASA had three overarching missions to, uh, to... establish superior technology in space, uh, to, to establish preeminence uh, in space relative to the Soviet Union, and to advance science by exploring the solar system. And he decided on his own, once he became president, NASA was founded in 1958, but he became president in the early 60s. He decided on his own to restrict all of NASA's attention just to that third ultimate aspiration of advancing science by exploring the solar system. And then, of course, we all know uh, what he did after that, where he made an announcement to Congress in one of the most famous speeches uh, to date, in which he he talked about how we're going to actually refocus our energy on a specific um, incarnation of that broader goal, which is to land a man on the moon before the decade is out and return him safely to Earth. So if you had to distill this down to a list of or, or some key takeaways for leaders... Uh, what would you say? Sure. So, uh, well, one is the, as I just mentioned, the criticality of articulating a, a common goal, not just to galvanize collective energy, but also to help people uh, build a connection between their work and the organization's highest aims. Another critical piece of the puzzle, uh, again, always keeping in mind the the importance of not only selling a grand vision, but helping people see the connection between their work and that vision. Uh, the usage of sub-goals. So Kennedy had a very unique way of using sub-goals that was 
pretty surprising. So uh, usually sub-goals are, are thought of as ways to break down a, a broader goal that could be daunting or intimidating and on a scale that is not, it's not tractable to try to pursue this goal in and of itself. Uh, it's, it's to break that goal down into smaller bite-sized pieces, what, what Carl Wick would call small wins, and to focus on each increment one at a time in piecemeal fashion. And uh, what Kennedy did is he actually took a completely different approach. Rather than thinking about having sub-goals be a way to divert your attention away from this broader goal, just focus on one bit at a time, he thought of sub-goals as a way to actually let people focus even more of their attention and effort on the ultimate goal, in this case, uh, the, the goal of landing on the moon. And he did this by... by um, uh, upending conventional wisdom at that time, and even to date, most people tend to set and tend to think of subgoals as um, better as they increase in number. So, a greater number of subgoals is good because it allows us to monitor our progress more effectively. It makes the uh, the problems that we're tackling more manageable. Uh, Kennedy took the opposite approach. He articulated at first just three subgoals um, to put a person into orbit to perform rendezvous and docking missions in space, and then to ultimately reach lunar orbit uh, prior to landing on the moon. And these, uh, these sub-goals ended up being the objectives of the three uh, space programs. First, the Gemini program in the early 60s, then the, sorry, the Mercury program in the early 60s, then the Gemini program in the mid-60s, then the Apollo program in the late 60s. And what happened was employees would, they saw a plausible path to the goal, to the, to the goal of landing on a moon. At first, they thought it was impossible. Even Neil Armstrong, the first person to walk on the moon in the early 60s, said that he, he thought this was a, a, an impossible goal and they would never achieve it. So it helped them realize or at least think that the goal was plausibly achievable, but it was simple enough of a pathway that they didn't get completely diverted away from the goal of landing on the moon. And so it remained in the forefront of their minds and it retained its motivational power. People didn't lose sight of what they were ultimately trying to achieve, and so they continued to be invigorated by it. And so uh, this is an example of, of how to think about a uh, you know, conventional idea, setting sub-goals. We all do it. We do it at work. We do it oftentimes in our own lives. For example, let's say I'm trying to run a marathon. I'm going to set a series of incremental goals, number of miles that I'll run each week. And so we all make use of sub-goals, but this is a very different way of thinking about the usage of sub-goals. It's to pave the path to focus our attention on the end goal rather than to divert our attention away from it. Great. Uh, it seems like a vast area to study. Are you working on anything that's yeah. related to this? Yeah. So uh, right now I have a concurrent line of research that, that speaks to a, uh, a, uh, an exercise that Kennedy engaged in that was, was also quite effective, which is um, translating the, the abstract mission of advancing science by exploring the solar system to uh, this concrete goal, this time-delimited goal of, of landing a man on the moon before the decade is out. Uh, that, that kind of twist where leaders focus on redirect their attention and redirect everyone's attention from an abstract overarching mission to a more concrete instantiation of the mission is extraordinarily difficult. In my research, I found that that vast majority of, of leaders actually don't do that. They tend to communicate abstractly. And this is very useful because what it does is it, is it makes people feel as if the goal that they're striving to achieve is, is closer. It's more proximal. It, it literally is. It's, it's more proximal in time because it's going to elapse at some point. 
And uh, it's also, you know, in this case of the moon, it was a tangible, palpable goal. It was a concrete goal. You could walk outside of your door at night and look in the night sky and see the moon. And as Deke Slayton said, uh, you know, it, it was hard not to stay motivated when every time you looked up in the sky, you had a reminder of what it is that you're striving to achieve. So, so th- th- but this kind of um, transformation of an abstract principle into a concrete manifestation in reality is extraordinarily difficult. And so I have a line of research that, uh, that can help identify a what we call a nudge, which is just a, a way of, of uh, tweaking the way that we tend to think about the goals that we're articulating so that we can think about it in a slightly different way so that our, our first instinct is to articulate a concrete organizational objective uh, that we can all rally around rather than an abstract general principle. Um, one caveat, though, and this is something else that Kennedy did remarkably well, is that uh, he he focused everybody's attention on a concrete goal, but it was a concrete goal that that retained a sense of gravity and challenge and ambition that could then allow people to cast it as a symbol that embodied the organization's ultimate grand abstract ideals. And so in this sense, people didn't think that they were just striving to land on the moon. They also felt like just, just by landing on the moon that they actually were, were realizing these abstract ideals. And Kennedy very carefully crafted his rhetoric to make people feel this way. So he would, he would actually talk about abstract principles as if they existed in the physical world. So, for example, he would say, he would say um, uh, we, we want to go to the moon because knowledge and peace are there. And if you think about the literal phrasing, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, knowledge and peace are on the moon. It's something that, of course, is impossible, an abstract idea existing in a physical location. But what it did when he and other NASA leaders uh, re- continually reinforced the, the idea that these two concepts were inextricably linked, the physical and the abstract, uh, it allowed them to uh, cast the, the moon as a, as a symbol of what they were trying to achieve in the abstract sense, rather than just a, a, an impressive physical feat of, of engineering. And so I mean, you think about one of the most famous one-liners of all time, uh, Neil Armstrong talking about, you know, this is not just one small step for a man, it's one giant leap for mankind. Right there, he's actually connecting uh, one very, in some senses, trivial human action of just taking one step to this broader idea of advancing science, one giant leap for mankind. So, so that's the, the twist, is, is getting leaders to, um, to articulate more concrete objectives, yet without those objectives losing the, losing the gravitas that allows them to be uh, reconstrued as, as representations or embodiments or vessels that, that, uh, that carry the organization's ultimate aspirations. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Drew. It's fascinating. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.